Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And i got to tell you, people, I'm very excited for this gentleman coming on my show today. He has a new album coming out. He's going on a big tour. And I actually, one of his former drummers ate Thanksgiving dinner at my house in L.A. years ago. And my guest is Mike Tramp. How you doing, Mike? Great to be here. Good to see you, man. So, so you're you're in a. You said you're in Denmark right now. What? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of a lot of people don't don't know. Maybe after five minutes they'll know. But I mean, this is originally where I'm from, and and uh, I came to the U.S. in '82, and uh, been sort of traveling around. After 22 years in the U.S., I moved to Australia, and then after that, partly to Indonesia, and then sooner or later, somehow, the road always brings you home. I know. I'm, I'm from New Jersey. I was in L.A. for 20 years. Five years ago, I moved back to New Jersey. I think it's something where we, as you get older, you miss your, your roots. And you go, you know what? I really want to get back there and, and live my life again. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, uh, it, not to sound too too dark, but it's sort of like you want to finish it up where you sort of started. <laughs> now, now I'm going to ask you, living in, growing up in Denmark, where were you, you know, what what music what what was your influences like what music did you hear as a kid that made you end up wanting to pursue music well i mean i grew up in a very musical home meaning we listened to a lot of music uh i come from a divorced family so my mom raised me and my two brothers in a little apartment and the alarm clock was either elvis johnny cash sam cook or roy orbison and and then, and, and, and my mom had a tough job. She worked in a bar during the day and during the night. And after school, we would come by and have a Coke and get like a, a quarter or two to put in the jukebox. And, and we would be listening to, to like late 60s and then early 70s. And of course, a large influence of British music, uh, you know, Pride or American. Obviously, you know, I just mentioned Elvis and, and Johnny Cash and stuff like that. So... I grew up mainly with, with, you know, with the Beatles and Elton John and, and Sweet and Slade. And uh, later on, as I, as I became a little older and took a, a different likeness to music, it became Queen and, and Thin Lizzy and things like that. And sort of once once we got into like the mid-70s, mid around like 76, 77, uh, when the first Boston album came out and that that total American sound totally enveloped me, you know, and just grabbed me and shook me around. I was just sold, man, one one second. And I loved that great, you know, always great singers in the American production. Oh, I mean, you know, from, from Brett Dell from Boston to Steve Perry Journey to Steve Walsh, Kansas, to Robin Sander, Cheap Trick. I took a gigantic lightning to that. And then when Van Halen came around, it was like they added a different dimension to it with, with their aggression and, and David E. Roth's persona and stuff like that. Not so much the vocal, but more just about here we come and we take no prisoners. It was, you know, it's funny because I was around that time too. I remember when Boston came out, you know, we're, you're like two years older than me. Everybody 
our age had the album Boston. Like, you know, and if you didn't have it in Boston, you're like, what is wrong with you? It's the same with like Kansas, Left Overture, and all those move, uh, things. And then when Van Halen came out, you're right, it really kickstart things because it just it was a different sound. So you're listening to this American music and you're loving it. When do you decide to start playing an instrument or singing? I mean, what at what age did you start? I mean, I mean, from from basically since I could walk, I've been a campfire guitar player, um, and and now I mentioned all the great rock bands there, but but even prior to that, you know, Denmark was heavily influenced on the whole you know '60s hippie movement, and we're a total folk country, uh, so there were an acoustic guitar on every street corner and a hippie with something smelling you know wonderful and things like that and and i was along with that already at at age 10 and just you know never with 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 much more of a goal than just being able to sit around the campfire or school camping or youth club whatever and have the other kids sing along never anything about that i was going to be the fastest guitar player guitar i was a songwriter i was I wanted to sing songs, man. You know, I came out from, you know, growing up with 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 my my older brother listening to Dylan and Neil Young, and and the Danish versions of them because, like I said before, we were a gigantic folk country. Every person knows an acoustic owns an acoustic guitar, so that is my true DNA is the acoustic guitar, and and I took that. I know I'm jumping a little, but th- that is where Vito Brada, guitar player and White Line, and my so- songwriter, songwriter partner, that's how we were. He sat across the table with a Strat, and I sat there. So this was kind of like, you know, Mellencamp meets uh, Hendrix, you know, and somehow in the middle it became White Lion. Now, when you wrote together, because you both had that same vision, even though you had different sounds, were you lyrics? Was he music? Or how did you decide what would write? Because I always think when there's two people, you have a lot of different ideas going on. And some people are more, you know, as you said, it's Hendrix meets, you know, Dylan. So it's, it's you have different influences. But when you guys would write together, what was the process? Well, I mean, I've never written lyrics before a song was done. I simply don't want to bother with that. And I hate changing something. So we only wrote music and melody simply as that and and then later on as the song started speaking to me and i started listening to my roots and where i come from because and and we might get into this later on uh maybe a, a, you know maybe where my tram stands a little aside from from sunset strip songwriters you know when it comes to lyrical subjects and stuff like that my european upbringing my awareness of the of the entire world you know um all those kind of issues were just issues that no matter of how long i wanted my hair and how tight my pants were there still was something that i could not shake and i have never been the kind of person that constantly will live in on the edge of sexual innuendos and and sexual quotations. It simply was not something that that sprung to mind when I sat down with pen and paper. I came from a completely different uh, background, et cetera, et cetera. Tell me more about the awareness. Like, you know, you said your awareness of what's going on around the world and how that, 
you know, when you attack a song, do you sit there and say, okay, there's a problem going on here. I'm going to, I'm going to write about that. Or tell me how that awareness kicks in because you're right. The eighties, it was a lot of TNA. Some of the songs you said sexual innuendos, but when you were writing differently, how did you, how did that come about? Well, in reality, not to blame it on on Brett Michaels or Vince Neil. In in general, rock and roll has been TNA. You know, I mean, it's always been been sort of around that. But I just wasn't I wasn't comfortable with it. I didn't feel at home with it. And it's not so much that I sat down and 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 dug deep in to see what kind of awareness issue could I raise now. They simply just came to me because my background was was something that being raised in Denmark, we were we were very much aware of of the struggles and, and all kinds of issues in the world. We weren't they weren't hidden from me. And you know, a, a, a silly thing here, I mean, we we're the first liberated country to allow pornography in Denmark and stuff like that. And, and on my way to school at only like age eight and age nine, I passed several, you know, uh, pornography stores and sex shops, you know, on the way. So I grew up with with very little interest for from looking on the other side of the wall because there were no wall. Um, we didn't, it wasn't, you know, the newspapers were full at it. They talked on TV. Uh, women on the beach were laying, you know, topless. My school teacher was topless when they, they took us on school trip. I mean, all this kind of stuff. Then when I see, you know, fast time as, at times that hit Richmond High or American, you know, youth movies and stuff like that, it's almost always like the sexual aspect is something that's hidden. And it's it's, it's something that you have to conquer and stuff like that uh so even at at you know at a very young age it was just something that we were very aware of existed in the same way that we were very much aware of that in 1978 the french government had blown a little fishing trawler to pieces around new zealand because they were trying to prevent you know french government from doing nuclear testing down there and that little fishing trawler was called the rainbow warrior and that is where what the song Little Fighter is about. And even though I'm not singing necessarily about, you know, this, you know, naming it in that way, um, that was that was that song about. And but but interesting enough of how many fans around the world took that their, that song as their own you know, him to, you know, to themselves or, or struggling songs. Or I've had soldiers coming back from, from, from Afghanistan and stuff like that with no legs and saying, man, this song kept me alive. I've had people losing their children to leukemia and stuff like saying, man, that was his favorite song or their favorite song. And it just, it just kept helping us through that. And, and, and things like that was, was important to me, even though, it was not favored by neither the band or the record company. I would think the record company might think, you know, you know how record companies are. I think they'd be like, well, wait a second. You know, this, this doesn't fit the sound and, and this lyrics, but, but for the, the listeners, we appreciate that because everyone needs a rally song. You know I mean? I grew up near Philadelphia, the Rocky song. You heard that it put you in that frame of mind that I can, I can, ex I can exceed what I'm doing. Well, like I said before, without going out and pointing fingers and blaming anyone from it or for it, 
um, especially the eighties were just like, you know, like, like a spinning thing that just was spinning so fast that nobody really had the chance to think about what it was that was going on. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, like MTV lit up a big fire and just asked us all to jump in it without thinking if it was going to burn us and later on we would regret the videos. But everybody was asking um, everybody to overdo each other. So nobody ever sat down and said, well, maybe we should think about if we are proud of this in 40 years. And here I am today. Basically, 40 years ago, since Vito and I sat down and wrote our first song, Broken Heart, together in Queens, New York, in 1983. Well, tell me, how did you end up in the States? I know you were in, in, a, in a, a, another band overseas, but how did you end up in America? And then, you know, and then how did you and Vito end up meeting? Well, I mean, I didn't answer your question early on, probably. I mean, I got into my first band at already age 15 and a half with basically no dreams of becoming like what I am today um, with not much of any preparation. I got into a band that were looking for somebody young in the band and somebody else pushed me through the door. They were 10 years older than me. And before I looked around, I, ha I had left school. I'd moved into their house. And I was uh, working night gigs. And, um, but at the same time, as I got into the band, um, I, of course, instantly took it to me and said, okay, this is where I am. Now let's go for it. And, um, you know, we were a big, you know, kind of teen band in Denmark. Basie the Rollers, David Cassidy, Osmonds, that kind of thing. And with time, it became too much. And then we actually immigrated to Spain. And little by little, I took over and became the songwriter. And and towards the end of 1981, we were now a completely different band. And the guitars had much more distortion. And I was pointing us towards America. And we had met this guy in, 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 in Spain that said, you know, I have a house in, in America. I know the music business. I'll be your manager. You can live in my house. And I says, when are we leaving? And in the summer of 82, we arrived in New York and we were called Lion and ended up playing a lot of the uh, the New York and Jersey clubs and experienced what it was like to play the music we loved in front of an audience who came from the place where that music was born. And uh, in November of 1982, we were playing in uh, Lemoore's in Brooklyn, New York, which later on become, became the house of White Lion because our managers owned that club and it became our rehearsal room. And that's when I met Vito. We were playing on the same bill, and I saw that guy, and I saw how advanced he was from the band I was in. And after we sort of returned after a, a half a year in the U.S. with no money and stuff like that, um, I came back in in, uh, in in February of '83, and 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 somebody had given me the number of Vito, and I called him, and we almost from the second we met, we were together and started White Lion. What was your first observation when you started playing? You know, you come overseas and you're playing in America. You're playing in New York and New Jersey, which it's a tough area. I mean, just people, it's, that's my people. You know, what yeah, was it like for you being a young guy coming over and being like, holy crap, what's, what's, what's going on here? What was it like for you? Well, it was, it was seeing it for real. 
because um, I had not um, really realized that what I thought we were was not really what we were. I mean, there was someone that was much better. And, and there's a there's a funny episode that um, we're sitting in, in the um, in the in the dressing room at, at Lemoore's in Brooklyn uh, playing there. I think actually I think it's November 22nd, 1982. And we're sitting there, you know, sort of quite clean cut five Danes, you know, our guitars lined up. You know, we got our stuff together. And in through the door walks Vito, um, long hair, dark, you know, mirrored sunglasses. It, it's midnight. His Stratocaster's basically hanging out of this broken uh, guitar case. And and um, I just thought to myself, man, what a jerk. And our bass player had built these small rehearsal amps, you know, before they even were created before. And Vito looks at one of them. He says, oh, man, can I try that? And I just said to myself, let him make a fool out of himself. <laughs> and then he plugged in and for the next half hour he just ripped through every Van Halen, Randy Rhodes solo that anybody and I just sat there, you gotta be kidding I thought we had it down and then I said to myself I gotta get rid of this band <laughs> <laughs> so when you and uh, when you guys started White Lion what was it like trying to get a record deal because you know you Nowadays, there's not a lot of record companies. You will talk about your new record that's on Frontiers, and Frontiers is a good company. They're an actual record company, but there's not a lot. But what was it like you, for you guys trying to get that first deal? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, all, all through 1983 was was spent recording. Oh, no, sorry, was spent writing writing the Fight to Survive album. Um, it's not necessarily that we had a plan, but our manager said, you know, okay, we need the songs now. And Vito and I had a hard time finding uh, a rhythm section, but finally we settled on one of Vito's friends, a great drummer, but a completely uh, hermit. And and we got a, an, an older bass player in from, from who had been in a band called Angel, which we all were fan of, even though he was not the original one. And we were starting, you know, getting together at night, you know, writing these songs, et cetera, et cetera. And then in, in, in January of 1984, our managers had, had you know, had a friend, in, a producer friend in Germany who had a big recording studio who offered that we could come and live there and record the album. He would produce the album. And if we if we got a record deal, you know, he would charge, you know, 25 percent. And if we didn't get a record deal, we got to keep the music. So we went there to Offenbach, Germany, like a suburb of Frankfurt. You couldn't you couldn't pick a more uh, away from rock and roll place than that, which also is why Fight to Survive is one of the darkest '80s albums existing. Um, and and when we came back, I mean, within three weeks, our managers landed a massive record deal with Electra Records, who at that time had had Motley Crue. They had Dawkins, they had just signed Metallica, et cetera, et cetera. And we started the ball rolling and uh, album cover and all this kind of stuff. Um, and everything looked like we were heading the proper way. We got a large amount uh, of money for that album. And then suddenly we got the call nobody thought we would ever get. And that is our manager calls us at the rehearsal room saying, man, we got... 
we got good news and bad news. What do you want to hear first? And it was like a really tough choice, you know. And then Vito says, give us the bad news. And he says, well, Electro Records have decided they're not going to release the album. And and then he goes, and you don't want to hear the good news? And he says, no. Well, you get to keep the money. And all we thought about that we had lost our record deal. And uh, till this day, we have never been told the reason why. And and basically for the next year, we were sort of just, you know, down and out and just rehearsing and writing and stuff like that. And then suddenly our manager uh, informs us that he has gotten, you know, uh, permission from Elektra to license the album out. And, and the album has, has been picked up uh, in Japan. And at the same time, we have signed a three album record deal with a, a big true JVC in Japan. And Fight to Survive gets released early um, or late 84 and starts becoming being imported and into France, Germany and England and going up the the import and underground charge. And the same thing in Japan. And suddenly the band is breaking in, in those four major rock areas. Meanwhile, we're still playing Union Jack in in in, uh, in New Jersey. <laughs> so, how do you take it to the next level? Because then you know, because your next album, Pride, was huge. But what was the what was the transition? Yeah, well, then, then in reality, we're, we're we're trying to fight our way. We then obviously now, as as little by little, the uh, you know the the these were of course days of record stores. So all the record stores, you know in the tri-state area had the album and we would do autograph sessions and then we would come back and every time there would be 50 more people and suddenly people down the block and we would be selling out two nights at Lamore, like 2000 people. And, and, and of course, Vito and I would be keep writing songs and we, we changed a few band members along the way. And, uh, in 86, we finally completed with, uh, with Greg, Greg D'Angelo and James Lomenzo on bass. And um, our managers were really, really pushing. And then we get this phone call from from a producer engineer, Michael Wagner, out in California. He says, man, hey, man, I heard your first album and stuff like that, man. I want you guys to come out here. I'll arrange the studio and the, and the house where you guys will stay. And I want to I record your next album. And we don't have a record deal by that time. But, you know, our manager sends us out there. And, and somehow, while we're doing that, they manage to land a record deal with Atlantic Records. So you get that, that record deal. You got to be ecstatic. And then the album takes a while to start really hitting, right? The The album takes a long time. It takes such a long time to till the record company basically is giving up. I can also assure you that it wasn't like they were really doing a lot. That that album was broken by the band and by the song the band broke because the first half year, uh, the first half year of the album release was which which was released in in I think June of eighty seven. We were on the road with Y and T with with uh, with Ace Freely playing our own shows and then in November we gonna we got one one and a half month with Kiss and so on so and it one wasn't until sort of around that November time when when one radio station in in St. Paul, Minnesota played the song at a at a key time and and the radio station exploded with requests 
And next next day, the the road in the trade paper that this song is really really showing potential, and then then a radio station in San Diego did the same. And before you knew it, it was like prairie fire, and everybody was picking up on it. And the MTV video got a second chance. And once it got in that heavy rotation, we were selling albums. And then we went to Europe to tour in 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 January February. And and just as we had landed in London, we got the phone call that Aerosmith wanted us on their permanent vacation tour. So, what is it like when it starts breaking? And I, I'm from the MTV generation. I mean, you know, in college and every everyone watched videos. I mean, we would sit there and you would hang out in a friend's basement and watch videos. What is it like when you're all of a sudden you're known to everybody? And you guys are they got the metal up. You're a good-looking guy. I mean, how does your life change? I mean, are people just noticing you on the street all of a sudden? Well, I mean, yeah, no. The thing is, from the beginning, when Vito and I started this band, we were not competing with the other band in Brooklyn. We were competing with Motley Crue and Van Halen. That's who we set as our competitors. I mean, not that we were in 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 you know in sports that we needed to win, but I mean, we all always rehearsed for the big stage. I mean, it was always like we're ready to hit the big stage if they call for us. So while these things that I just mentioned happened, we're already on the road touring and dealing with everyday life and going out on stage and. And here in an audience, you know, applaud our music and stuff like that. So it's almost just like uh, someone is just replacing the battery and you look at the gauge and you see, man, I got full power. I keep going. And it just adds. And just like the same thing, it didn't take long for us to, to you know, start the Aerosmith tour when suddenly we got the offer to, uh, to, con- to continue three days after the Aerosmith tour to do three months with ACDC. Now, and, and those were not the days. We were not just a support band. We were paid real good money because we were like a special guest. We were selling platinum albums at that time. Now, how hard is it? You know, the album is popular. How hard is it when you're touring and you have to write a follow-up? You know, as a writer, that must be really your mind has to be frazzling, frying a little bit because you have to perform at night, but you also know the record company's like, we need something. We need, we need another good album. Yeah. I mean, you hit it right on the nail right there. And, and that is a, you know, the problem is not writing the album. The problem is having the time to write the album and give it time to digest that you have written the right songs. Um, because like, like I, I said before, after, after kind of like fight to survive was dropped you know vito and i kept kept writing and 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 within the next year basically the pride album or the songs of the pride album becomes our live set in the clubs so by the time we go into the studio in in early 87 to record this album we played these songs for a year and a half. Now, once the Pride album comes out and we hit the road, we are on the road for a good year and a half, 18 months, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and we come off the road. We have one last month with Striver in November of 88. And that's exactly where your words come in. The record company saying, we need a new album soon. And we needed to go home and sleep. We needed to go home and wrap our hair in, in hair balsam, you know, and, and conditioner for the next half year because it had been teased and sprayed every goddamn <laughs> night. And we also needed to get away from each other. But you saw what what's happening. Three days after we, we returned, Vito and I get get booked into like a, a deserted, you know, close for the winter motel in Palm Springs, where in ten days we write the big game album. Were you did were you happy with that writing? Because I know sometimes when you are pressured to write with a time frame, as you said, you really can't expand. But was it was it something when you wrote that you looked at and said this is really good, or is there some songs that you felt like you were under the gun to get out? Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, of course we were under the gun, but of, of course when I look back now, and, and, you know, I know that with Little Fighter, we wrote a perfect kick-ass rock and roll song with a strong, with a strong message, but we never had the time for the songs to grow. I mean, we, we, rewrote Wade and Lady of the Valley and Tell Me several times in the period of us playing these songs live. These songs never got any form of rewriting. You know, the second we had written those songs, we were in there doing demos with Michael Wagner, took a, a short Christmas break, and then started going into the studio and recording this album. And yeah. I have, you know... In, in my later years, when I have to, you know, address these issues, that album to me is an unfinished album. Now, does that, you know, you feel it's not finished. Do you think that has stunted your writing ability at the time? Like if you had had a year longer to write your follow-up to Pride, do you think that you would have been saying it was a finished album? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I cannot go, I I can't go back and saying the songs are not good. I'm there. I'm very proud of a lot of these songs, but it it has a lot more to do with the familiarity of the band recording them because it's almost like you know one thing is what Vito and I had had written the songs and he had rehearsed the songs for a couple of days with Greg and James, but there were still new songs to everyone when they were recorded. So then there were never a, a, a chance of saying, what about if we did this song in halftime? What about if we changed the key? What about if we started the song with this? No, the first take became the final version. Now, what, what made you guys end up breaking up? What was it? I mean, was it, was it just too much, too fast? Was it overload? I've, I've talked to so many bands where they go, it's not that we wanted to break up. Just we got tired of each other, and like in a relationship, you know, I'm divorced, but I'm remarried. When you're when you're in a relationship, you can you can get away from each other. But it seems for the record companies back then, pushed the bands together. Like you said, you guys got off the road, and then you're writing. I mean, was that one of the reasons why the split happened? Well, I you know, I think there's a lot of a lot of parts that 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 you know is is, is you know is 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 part of 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 like the the whole thing and every little thing adds. I mean, 
to tell you the truth, by the second we started going in and recording the, the Big Game album, even though we had just finished almost a two-year world tour, we'd been to Japan, we'd had a successful European tour, we had had three massive tours in America with ACDC, uh, you know, Aerosmith and Kiss. I mean, we couldn't ask for anything more. We had a top three hit with with, with When the Children Cry. We had a, a top 40 hit with eight at, 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 at position eight with, with Wade and 11 with with, uh, with Tell Me and, and, and the Pride album had become double platinum and, and we had everything. And, um, but now as i look back and hindsight is 2020 it is like that for everyone you know um there are so many signs along the way but and 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 one factor that maybe we never really seems to pay attention to is that the entire industry and times were also changing i mean big game is 1989 there's only just a very short time until Eddie Vedder and, and Kurt Cobain shows up on the on 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 you know the doormat of the Rainbow on Sunset Boulevard, you know. Um, so the industry was changing, and 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 little by little, it's almost like the '80s fire was starting to burn at half. So there wasn't as much excitement. So whenever you you ran into a little bit of 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 of, of, of a concrete wall, it, it did not give at all. Um, where it, earlier on everything was possible, they just added another zero on the check. Um, and then, because we had a little bit of of a. So, uh, things against us on on the big game album. Not not a lot of people liked it. You know, even though the album sh- shipped gold and so and so, Vito and I took almost all of ninety to write the main attraction album, and we said this is not going to happen. And we really put our effort in there. And it's also very obvious that with with the main attraction album, White Lion is is taking even a further right or a left away from Main Street. 80s hair rock and roll. So we had we had big expectations for this album, but basically by the time the album was released, the entire record company went on vacation that day. And when we came in to play New New York uh, City, our hometown, with a big sold out show, there were nobody from the label backstage. So when you add a little bit of, of personal issues in the band and stuff like that, and 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 you throw more and more of that on on the fire. It doesn't take a lot to push you over the edge, even though you're dealing with your own band. And something obviously pushed me too far over the edge. That you know, three weeks before, or, or, or no, three days before the the final show on, on the tour, which was September second, ninety one. I go to Vito. I says, I'm going to call this off when the final show when we play Boston. And Vito looks at me and says, okay, we didn't speak about this for another 20 years. You know, it, White Lion is such a big part of your life. And then now you're coming out with this. I know, I know, I know. It makes no sense. But what doesn't make any sense is all the people who made money from us, our managers, our publicists, our publishing company, our record company, our merchandise company, there's not one person that calls next day or the couple of days after says, come on, guys, take a break. Let's have a meeting. Let's regroup, et cetera. It, I mean, 
I still couldn't sit here and give you a full legit reason why all these things happen. It's just, it completely baffles me. But at the same time, it also tells me that if nobody cared, why should I care? And already on the air, on, on the fl flight back from, from, from Boston to LA, to my home, I had already formed my new band. You know, it's crazy. I, I want to talk about, I said, we're going to get to the album, but I want to talk about the Sunset Strip. Because when I moved out to LA, the Sunset Strip was, you know, you went to the, when you walk into the whiskey, you were like, oh my God, or the Troubadour. What was it like in the heyday, man, when you guys are playing there? I mean, when people, you know, the bands are putting shit on the, on the, the, the telephone poles and it's packed. Yeah. What is, what, can you explain what that energy was like as a performer? Not as, you know, as a concert going and stuff like that, we all know, but what was the energy like? Was there a camaraderie between bands or were some bands just pricks? I mean, what was it like? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm actually going to, you know, um, give you a little bit of a different story because there is, it's really heaven and hell because, because the L.A. scene is the visual scene of the 80s. It's the one that's portrayed in videos, portrayed in, in, in Motley Crue movies and, and all those kind of stuff. The Brooklyn, Staten Island, New York, Queens scene is non-existing on the street. We're locked up in a basement, you know. Uh, you know, there are no physical, uh, uh, no, no visual scene that you go around until it was Thursday night and Lamore in Brooklyn opened the doors and a thousand rock fans dressed the same way as the bands on stage showed up like this gathering and, you know, and then they returned home and changed into their own clothes. Where in uh, LA, people were like that 24 hours a day. You know, it's sort of like the weather and the atmosphere and the vibe allowed that. There were no 80s scene on, on, on Manhattan, unless you were at the Cat Club or um, those few places that catered to that. You know, but there were not street corners with guys with long hair and stuff like that. And that's why the New York scene is is so small when you compare it to the rest of the 80s scene. I mean, we've got Twister Sister. We got White Lion. You know, I mean, there are not many more bands you can add to that. So yeah. for us, it was completely different. You know, we went home and watched, you know, uh, Ralph Crampton and Star Wars and, and Vito and I would be on the phone talking about the next song. We were never out partying and stuff like that. And and in the history of a wide line, we only played the Roxy on Sunset Strip once and we were never part of that scene. That sucks because you would have loved it. Now, the new album, Mike Tramp's Songs of White Lion. What made you go back and readdress it. I, For me, I used to do stand-up comedy. I have a show, I'm getting back on stage at City Winery in April. I know I'm not going to do the material I used to do because I've grown from that. Is that sort of why you went back? Because whereas when you're a young guy and you're writing, as you go through life, you mature and you probably have a different view of those songs now. Is that one of the reasons why you came out with this album? Well, you know what? It's almost like, and I hate to say this, even though that I'm very proud of, of the music, a lot of, of your listeners will not know that I have 14 solo albums and, and, and free with Freak of Nature. 
But if you can't beat them, you got to join them. And the thing, since Wide Lion ended in 91, I've carried the backpack of Wide Lion everywhere I've gone. Every show that I played, the poster has says the voice of Wide Lion or the guy with the long hair from Wide Lion. Every interviews have mentioned Wide Lion. Every every promoters ask, can we mention you playing Wide Lion songs? It has never left me. There's been certain places around the world that I've had a bit of a sanctuary from that. But whenever I've stepped out on, on the international stage, people have somehow cried for this. And, and, and at times I've given in, but you know, at the same time, it's also when I went solo in 97, um, my, my, my tramp as a solo artist is, is, is much closer to Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen than he is to White Lion. So I didn't take these songs with me and I didn't have a band that played that way. And I, 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 and I said, you cannot be in my band if you have any love for the 80s. <laughs> you know, it's it sort of, I wasn't that mean, but you know what I mean? So, and then when I sort of got forced in and I started doing, you know, compromising ver version of White Line, it didn't sit well with me until I, you know, I finally says, you know what? It's so late in the game now. It just seems like I have to divide these up to different categories. Uh, the festival scenes in Europe, the rock scenes and stuff like that, this is what they want to hear. Now, let me work a little on seeing how I can present these songs because I'm not 26 anymore. I'm 62. I, can't, I don't sing like that anymore. I wouldn't want to sing like that anymore. So I've spent almost a year together with a guitar player, you know, finding ways of of uh, playing the Dubrata's guitar work in a different key, not just tuning it down, because some of these songs are like six, seven steps. In other words, you can't even tune down that way. And finally, when I heard us record these songs and I hit him back, I says, wow, this is almost like a new life to an old song without us really changing it. So it really made me interested in doing that. And, and and for those who have seen the album covers and stuff like that, you, I, I'll basically tell you that is a concert poster. That is basic. When you look at that, you know what this is about. This is what Mike Tramp does. He sings the songs of White Lion. Not as White Lion. He doesn't call it White Lion. It's songs of White Lion. Now, in your, so, in, in your solo career, I know you did an acoustic set. You did an acoustic tour. What is that like? I mean... When you're just, it's just you, you're bearing it down. I mean, what is, was that something you really look forward to when you, when you went out on your own acoustically? You know, but that's, but that's like I told you from the beginning, that's how I grew up. That's my bread and butter, man. That's my DNA. That's why I'm home complete. I can go, I can stand in any living room, any pizzeria or Madison Square Garden with that acoustic guitar and, and give you just as much as I did when I jumped around in flashy clothes. Uh, and also, most White Lion songs can be played that way because they, they, the structure and the foundation of the song is that way. In many ways, Beatle, you know, in many ways, Beatle and I, you know, chose the Lennon-McCartney way that the song has to work in the most simple format. You know, once a great guitar solo comes in and the and the and the nice drum beat and bass and stuff like that, that's a bonus. But if the song works here in the kitchen which is with, a, with an acoustic guitar with a broken string and, and a Strat without an amp, it's going to work on the radio. Now, do you remember the first time you heard yourself on the radio? 
Yeah, no, yeah, and I know when uh, when Markovla played the played the uh, bro- Broken Heart on on the, what was it, Kill, uh, the big radio station in New York and stuff like that, and even actually also Howard Stern were one of the first one who came in and supported us when he had come into New York and and really really became you know somebody who wanted to stir up things. Now what's you're coming up you're you're going on a tour starts May 2nd. What can people expect on that tour? Are you playing um, this album in an entirety? Are you playing more of your solo music? I mean what when people come to see Mike Tramp, you know cuz did I tell you before what is the po- what is the po- album says songs of white lion. But yeah, but you're not going to play just that, right? Yeah, you know, that's exactly what we're going to play. And, you know, and a couple of other Wild Lion songs. Uh, the, the the May tour in, in in America is similar in many ways to the eight other tours I did, did through, you know, uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. I jumped 18, and then I came back in 19. It's a power duo with two electric guitars, and we got a little bit of a drum bass loop behind us. And we play these songs because right now, um the venues cannot support a full band both fee wise etc etc so we do this before we we jump to europe where we play all the big rock festivals with the full band and then we cross our fingers for later on to be playing with full band in in, in the u.s now two more questions one where did the song weight come from well, the songs all came from the same place. I mean, some songs Vito started, some songs I started. Vito, Vito played the intro of Wait, and the first word I sang was Wait, and there were never any going away from that, you know. And it was it was one of those very, very easy songs. You know, we just worked so well together. He knew where I was going to go with the vocal, so he, 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 he created that platform for me to land with the vocal and, and you know, I think we we wrote that song, you know, sort of in in that one day, and had recorded on a little Walkman, and we listened to it back in the car. And we just looked at each other, and said, "There's a hit." Now, do you still talk to Vito at all? Yeah, I talk to Vito. We don't talk that much, you know, verbally. We've been been dealing back and forth with some with some old white line paperwork and stuff like that. But you know, Vito knows that I'm here whenever he needs me for something like that we have made it clear or at least i have made it clear there will not be a wide line reunion for anything now what do you see it, it makes no sense we would not be a better band and there's no wish for the band to be back together now what do you see in the next five years for mike tramp where do we see you do as a bunch of solo well, stuff or- I, I, I have a lot of music as an artist i also know as as you know the record market, the, the 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 music market is very little with streaming and stuff like that. So I, in many ways, do albums for dedicated hardcore fans and maybe sometimes just print up 5,000 limited vinyls and stuff like that. And I have I have much music to give there. And then I see this Songs of Wideline elaborate to even a bigger live set and then just be, I'd be just part of, of, of uh, shows the next five years whenever I can go and I'll be playing those songs bringing wide line back to the um, to the live stage well that's awesome michael i want to i want to thank you for uh coming on today people you can go get the album songs of white line go to facebook mike tramp he's got a nice page he's, he, he has everything out there uh the store tour starts may 12th 
Um, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 948 episodes there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.